1: As always it's great to have you with me for this next and second stop on our journey through time and space. Before we get started I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who helps to support the making of this podcast by signing up to my Patreon site Uh, that one's full of history comment and my personal philosophy of life. To join simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name Neil Oliver and sign up. Okay, now it's time for the next episode of my love letter to the world. Get ready as the foundation stones of civilization are being set in place. Recorder, microphone, action. And as long as we keep living by these rules, we can maintain the structure, we can keep the house of cards standing, we can play the game of civilization. Order one from chaos. Farmers, technology and writing coming together to help build civilization. A beautiful seven-foot monolith of dollarite standing for all to see. Engraved with 282 laws. Rights, consequences, justice. Laws set in stone. Shining a light on humanity for thousands of years and stretching all the way into the 21st century. Understanding history and what has gone before to shine a protective light upon the future. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world.
0: Hi, Neil. In the last episode, we heard from Eneheduana, the world's first known writer, as she brought her words to life. Which moment in time are we eavesdropping on this
1: week? Yes, and Hedioana's work was carved into clay tablets, pressed into clay tablets so that it could be saved and remembered. And that development of the written word was one of the fundamental building blocks of civilization. This week, we're staying in the cradle of civilization and traveling back almost 4000 years to the moment King Hammurabi laid down the law. It's essentially about the need for a system of laws if a civilization is to function from generation to generation. There needs to be, or there has traditionally been, um, a set of legally binding controls that effectively give everyone a sense of where they fit. In the bigger picture of civilization. That here are the here's what's expected of you, this is what's expected of us, and if we all do this, then civilization will remain standing. A bit like a house of cards that might otherwise be knocked over. We take it for granted that the law is just there, that we can refer to it, and that whatever. Complication turns up in our lives as individuals or in broader society, that the lawyers and the lawmakers and lawgivers will be able to tell us what to do, what's expected. And it's a very old idea. At some point, so distant from us that there's no real record of it, human beings like us seemed to take on the idea that right and wrong the law was not really the creation of human beings but was handed down from God or the gods that the necessary order by which people might live peaceably with one another was beyond us, (laughs) and we had to get it from God. I mean, if you know the Old Testament story about Moses, Moses goes up the mountain and comes down some days later with the law, etched into a couple of stone tablets. And it's God, it's the one God of the Hebrews that has etched those words into the stones. You know, Moses didn't think it up. He went and took delivery of the law. And that's a a very old, that's a very old tradition. And so the moment in question here is as far as makes sense to me, the time when that notion was first and most effectively made manifest in front of a civilization. And it's the time of Hammurabi, the lawgiver, not the lawmaker, because he freely accepted that the laws that he offered up to his people were not his own creation. Rather, he was putting together in one place laws that simply were already there because they had come not from one God essentially, but from the gods. And it's really quite a significant moment, I would contend, in the story of civilization.
0: Because it helps to bind civilization together.
1: Yeah, you need. I suppose you might you might simplistically say that a civilized society is like a game, and games need rules. Just as you can't play football if everyone's got a different idea of what should be allowed and what shouldn't. Likewise, any game, golf. You know, if if you're playing soccer and somebody picks up the ball and runs with it then you're not playing you're not playing soccer anymore but as long as everybody understands the rules then then it's easy a bunch of wee boys wee boys and girls can sort themselves out a game of football with four jumpers for goalposts in an empty space and they can play football quite happily because they all know the rules it brings order out of chaos and likewise a, a civilization is ordered and made comprehensible to everyone By laws. I mean we 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 obey something like the law all the time. It's you know, like when you I don't know if you if you walk into a theatre to see a show, we all know what to do. The audience sits down in seats, facing the stage, after the curtains open up, the actors come out and they perform. And the audience stays quiet and or or laughs when appropriate, or gasps at a surprise. But it would only take one person to start shouting and bawling or to climb up on the stage, and the whole thing would fall apart. But it functions because everybody in the theatre knows what to do. And that way everyone, everyone can go and enjoy the performance. And it's quite miraculous, really. We do it all the time. You know, people queue up to get money out of cash machines, or we used to before everybody stopped using cash. Or when you go to school, kids very quickly learn that they have to sit down in the, in the seats in the classroom and they have to be quiet and they have to listen while the teacher talks and that way you get an education and it only takes a couple of people who break the rules and the whole thing's chaotic Civilization is a complicated game and the law gives it order and lets everybody mostly then just go on with the business of going about their lives
0: Which part of the world are we in this week?
1: Well, in the first moment in the story of the world, we met Enheduanna, who was the high priestess of a, of a temple in the city of Ur, about 4,300 years ago. Her moment draws a line in the sand and says, after this point, we're writing things down and we're remembering who we are and what's important. Ur was a city in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the land between the rivers specifically the tigris and the and the euphrates in that territory broadly speaking we would call you know the the levant or or the middle east it's it, it's that the fertile crescent it, it's all it's all happening the earliest moments in the story of the world all happened there for century after century
0: is that why they call it the cradle of civilization
1: absolutely yes that's amongst its other names it's where it would appear as far as we know that people first undertook the laborious process of domesticating crops and animals. So it, it, it's, the, it's the home of, of farming. It seems to be the home of, of the first settled civilizations. You know, people coming together in large, very large numbers, thousands of people living in what we would understand as cities or very large towns. I, I mean, for example, in that part of the world, at Jericho, in the Valley of Jordan, people were farming there 10,000 years ago. They were gathering crops, and they knew they had something worth protecting because sometime subsequent to that, they built a city for themselves. A city wherein lived several thousand people, and they put themselves behind a wall 12 feet high and 6 feet thick with a tower from which they could watch the surrounding landscape because they, they knew they had something worth defending. And you might say what they had that was worth defending was civilization. They had one order out of chaos, and they didn't want the chaos to come back they lived in a landscape driven by dust storms and floods and unpredictable weather, where life had been miserable. But they had learned to come together and work collectively and cooperatively. And once they cracked that, everything became possible. They could live together. And everyone didn't need to just scratch a living or, or go hunting. People could be set aside as, as as farmers. And some people could be set aside you know, to look after the animals. And because there was now surplus food, other people could specialise. So you could have craftspeople, you could have teachers, you could have record keepers uh, who were able to rely on a supply of food being created by the surplus. All of these were collateral benefits of civilisation. So people had realised that chaos was was more trouble than it was worth. And if they could just come together and cooperate and work collectively, then almost anything was possible, limited only by their their technology, and by their imagination. So, Enheduanna is there about 4,300 years ago in Ur. But her father was the, possibly her father, some people dispute the relationship between Enheduanna and her father. Her father was King Sargon the Great of Ur. And he was an Akkadian. His people were Akkadians, And that dominance lasted in Ur until his grandson. And after his grandson, they were supplanted by people called the Gutians who came out of Iran. There were other people in the vicinity as well. There were Elamites and Amorites. All of them were subjugating people who were called Sumerians. The land was Sumer, but the Sumerians had been dominated by incomers, by Akkadians and by by Gutians and others. Then there was a time in which the Sumerians were in the ascendancy. It's a steadily developing process of of one dominant group after another. And the time of Ur as the predominant city waned. And other cities came to prominence. And one of those cities was Babylon. Everyone's heard of Babylon. Hanging gardens of Babylon, all of that. It became a, a watchword, Babylon, for a kind of decadence as well. It became a place where, you know, civilization became lavish and extravagant. But for some time it was the greatest city on earth and the most famous of its kings was Hammurabi. And Hammurabi has gone down in history as the lawgiver. And it's important to remember that he's a lawgiver, not a lawmaker. It's this idea that he's not making the law, he's obtaining it from above and making it available to the people.
0: By saying the laws are universal rather than simply what he wants, is it a way of protecting himself and making them more acceptable to everyone?
1: Yes. He's, it, it, it's, in the, it's in the nature of kings and queens and emperors to dig in, to reinforce their position, to underscore and underline their legitimacy. And they do that by storytelling, to some extent. This is why they need and they work in sync with religion. You know, King Sargon had his palace, but it was close by the temple where Inheduanna was the middle woman between humankind and the, and the gods. You know, She was understanding something about the gods in some mysterious fashion and letting it be more widely known. A king's power is more direct, it's more obvious. And yes, kings seek to persuade the people around them that it's right and proper that they be the ones in the dominant position. And amongst other things, Hammurabi did this by making the law visible to the people. If civilization is a bit like a game, it's also a bit like a, a construction, or it is a construction. One of the kings, one of the Sumerian kings, was Ur-Namu, and he built the Ziggurat of Ur. A ziggurat's a bit like a pyramid, a sort of a tiered wedding cake of a thing, broad base, gradually you know, narrowing to the top. And the Ziggurat of Ur, was amongst many. They were in the business of building these uh, ziggurats, but the one built by Urnamu, the Sumerian king, was, you know, it was like a tower of Babel. And so, just as civilization is like a game with rules, it's also like a ziggurat, in as much as there had to be a broad base supporting most of the weight of civilization. And that broad base at its lowest level was slaves, people who had nothing and were owned and controlled by others. Above them, were the poor who were free. They might not own anything, but they were not themselves owned by anyone else. And then above them were the property-owning rich, fewer in number all the time until eventually you get to the top of the ziggurat where sits the king. And so people were seeing in the landscape these shapes that were subliminally, if you like, describing to them how civilization worked. Broad base, most even nothing, but, and you're doing most of the work, and you're holding up, Tears above you, who own everything, own the property. And right at the top, there's a king.
0: So the hierarchical organisation of society is ancient then?
1: It's 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 old beyond a time where we don't know where it came from. Be- because like, like everything else, like the stories that were passed down orally and remembered and passed on before writing, and then eventually they become fixed with the advent of writing... We don't know how long people understood the necessity of rules. Hammurabi was not the first person to write down rules, but he was the most effective, and he was the first king to dominate the whole of Mesopotamia. And it was possibly that position of dominance that meant when he decided to pull together the laws that people, broadly speaking, were already living by, and he gathered them together all in one place, it really mattered because it was Hammurabi that was doing it. And what he did was he commissioned the carving of a great stone uh, called a stele, seven feet tall, like a column, shaped a bit like a finger actually, like a a finger pointing at the sky. And that's the moment, the moment that everyone should be thinking about. It it probably happened around 1,754 years BC. And Hammurabi in this moment is standing in front of the freshly finished stele this seven-foot-tall column of dark, shining, dolerite stone. On the back of it, on the back of the stele, the reverse of the stele, if you imagine where the fingernail is on a finger, there's a a, a recess, a carving in bas-relief, and it shows Hammurabi receiving the law from the god, or a god, called Shamash, who was the Mesopotamian, Babylonian, god of the sun and Shamash was the son of Nana and Inanna who were the god and goddess that in Heduanna wrote her hymns about. So Shamash is their son. So in the picture uh, the the god Shamash is sitting and Hammurabi is standing in front of him and where we think of Moses receiving the law in the form of two engraved slabs of stone In the case of Hammurabi, he's being handed a measuring rod and a tape by the god. These are the the symbols of him receiving the law, receiving this collective wisdom. The Babylonians believed in a pantheon, more than one god. But just as there were other powerful people around Hammurabi that he wanted to dominate as well as everybody else... So there was a a story of many gods with one preeminent god sitting on the top. In the Babylonian story, there had been a masculine figure called Apsu and a feminine figure called Tiamat. Tiamat appeared like a a dragon, like a, a monstrous serpent creature. Apsu and Tiamat had given birth to many, many children who were other deities. And the children of Apsu and Tiamat were uncontrollably wild. And Tiamat decided one day that she would just destroy them. It has some of the sound of God getting angry with his creation and deciding to bring the flood, you need to wipe the slate clean. But in any event, Tiamat decided she was going to get rid of all her children. And one of the children was Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K. And he faced up to Tiamat on his own. He stepped out from among his siblings and faced their mother Tiamat. And he killed her. And he cut up her body. And from her body, he made the earth and the heaven and the sea. So he brought order he established order for the first time. And because Marduk had done this on his own, the other children, the other deities, accepted Marduk as king of kings. So he was the paramount god. So Hammurabi used that as a story to let them know that just as Marduk was accepted as the preeminent paramount god so his people should accept him as the preeminent paramount king. You know, he was using that older story to, to illustrate his position. On the front of the stele, carved in 4,000 lines of cuneiform script, were his 282 laws. And they detail everything. His idea was that by putting the laws all together in one place, he was inviting all of his people, that if they had if they had any questions about how civilization was to be ordered, how the law was to be understood, they could come and see the stele He had he had engraved upon it, "Let the oppressed man, who has a cause, come into the presence of my statue, and read carefully my inscribed stele Your ignorance is no defence. The idea was, you know, if you do something wrong, you can't you can't come crying to me that you didn't know it was wrong, because it's it's there on the stone. So, if you've stolen something, or if you've hurt someone, or you've committed some or other crime, don't try telling anyone that you didn't know it was wrong, because it's all laid out for you on the stel. And
0: if someone does something to you, you can find yeah. out it's wrong.
1: Yeah, you could come. You could come and cons- You could come and consult it. There's all sorts of things. It made clear amongst other things that in the in the Babylonian civilization, there were three classes of people. There were slaves, there were people who were free but owned nothing. And then the third class of people were superior people who owned everything. I mean nothing ever changes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were a handful of rich people that controlled everything. Uh, and that was that was laid out, and people were to be treated differently. All people were not equal before the law in this instance. If a doctor was treating a superior person and that superior person died, the doctor would have his hands cut off. If the doctor was treating a poor person and they died, he might be subject to a fine. M- men and women were not to be treated equally either. If a, If a superior man had his bone broken by someone else's incompetence or in a fight then his opponent, or whoever had done it to him, would have that bone broken as well. But if a superior woman had her bone broken by a superior man, the daughter and the property of the superior man responsible would be destroyed, but the superior man wouldn't pay the price. So men and women, even superior men and women, were not equal. Also on the stele of Hammurabi is the first manifestation of lex which is the law of retaliation, which we know as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know this idea, If a superior man should blind the eye of another superior man, they shall blind his eye. If he should blind the eye of a commoner, he shall weigh and deliver sixty shekels of silver. If he should blind the eye of a slave of a superior man, he shall weigh and deliver half of the slave's value that idea was then carried forward you know we encounter lex talionis in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and thine eye shall not pity but life shall go for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot and then in the New Testament in Matthew in the sermon on the mount Jesus says "Ye have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth so from the time when hammurabi set it down on his stele 37 centuries ago, it was never forgotten and it keeps on being resurrected and used again and again. The stele was actually, it stayed in Babylon for who knows how long and then it was looted. Babylon fell to a 12th century BC king of the Elamites and the stele, along with much else was taken away as spoils of war. And it was actually found broken into three pieces in the ruins of a city called Susa in Iran, 160 miles east of the Tigris. It was found by a Swiss Egyptologist called Gustave Jekier in uh, 1901. And it's been, it's been on display in the, in the Louvre in France ever since. It's significant because what Hammurabi has done is make manifest make clear to all the idea that the laws of civilization, the rules governing civilization, are not the creation of human beings the idea is that we are not capable of that we as, a, as creatures crawling on the earth don't have the necessary wisdom to come up with the law and so the law is handed to humankind by God or the gods. And that is an idea that has stayed with us. You know, our laws, our civilization, is Judeo-Christian. It comes from the Jewish Old Testament and it comes from the Christian New Testament. But the Old Testament and the New Testament obviously are younger, much younger, than the rule of Hammurabi. They are continuations of the same idea that the law just exists the law is handed down to humankind from invisible deities. In the 20th century, with the advent of the communist revolution in Russia and elsewhere in the world, underscoring that in terms of Karl Marx's philosophy was the notion that we could set aside the old laws and come up with new. And so that was tried in the communist states, but We all know the consequences of that. All you end up with is a ziggurat of corpses, the like of which the species had never seen gathered together in one place at any time before. Because as it turns out, it's very difficult to come up with the laws with which to govern a society. And you mess with the fundamentals of law and order at your peril. Ideas, the the essential idea that the law is, is somehow above us, not of us, but handed down to us, is something that has served us well. And that idea that we should take seriously and remember that which has provided order in the past and that may be counted upon to continue to provide order in the present is an idea worth remembering.
0: Could this be where the phrase set in stone comes from?
1: It's a good question. I don't have a pat answer to that, Paul. It, it, certainly, it certainly could. It could certainly reasonably refer to that. I think it's it's more broadly speaking that if you write in the dust, the wind will blow it away. If you carve some words into into a piece of wood or into the trunk of a tree... Eventually, the the wood will rot, or the tree will grow, and the and the words will become obscured. But if you carve, if you etch something into stone, it will last the longest time.
0: It must have been incredible to discover the stele.
1: I know, I know that a lot of these discoveries seem to have been made around it. You know, there was so much was 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 coming to light during the 19th century when when that part of the world was being explored by Europeans and the significance of the stele was clear to all in it, and it has been on display or it has been in the, in the collections of the Louvre in Paris ever since. And to me, the significance of the moment is that idea. It was the most effective demonstration of the power of bringing together wisdom into one place. Hammurabi didn't even pretend that the law was his. He continued the older tradition that the law just was, that right and wrong was beyond the wit and the reach of humankind to lay down. We have to be told it, and that he, he was doing a service to his people by gathering all in one place, the laws by which people were already living, and then he ordered it all to be etched into a single piece of stone, that was then in a prominent place in Babylon, and anyone who felt wronged, anybody with any kind of uncertainty about what should happen, could come and consult the stele and look for justice of one kind or another. Once Hammurabi had followed through with that idea and created the stelle, it was an idea that was repeated again and again and again. Bring the law together, let the people see it, and then ignorance is no defence. And as long as we keep living by these rules, we can maintain the structure, we can keep the house of cards standing, we can play the game of civilization.
0: Do you think it was inevitable that written laws would be developed here?
1: I think it, I think it's, it is, I think, uh, a product of that place and that time you know, we've already, we've already talked about the fact that Mesopotamia was challenging. It was a challenging landscape. You know, it was a place of, of unpredictable weather, of dust storms, of flood. You know, it was, there, were, there were waterways all around. And at any moment, it seemed, at the whim of the gods, the rivers would rise and all that had been achieved all the buildings that had been raised, all the roads that had been laid out, all the fields of crops could just be destroyed. You know, this idea that chaos, original chaos, was always waiting. In the story of Apsu and Taimat and Marduk, the understanding was that chaos was just there. No God made chaos. Chaos was just always there. And then Marduk brought order out of that chaos. And at the same time, people in Mesopotamia were realising that if they came together and obeyed the law, worked collectively, worked collaboratively, they could bring order out of the chaos of that landscape. And once they learned how to do it, it became important not to forget how that had been achieved. And for some period of time, presumably, that wisdom, that understanding of that order was just passed as stories, passed and remembered orally. Then comes writing. And once you've got writing, you can make wisdom permanent so that it's there like gold, a vein of gold through rock. It's permanent. You don't need to worry about forgetting it. It's just there. And then there's this, it evolves into this idea that civilization is based on these rules and if everyone can see the rules then civilization can be maintained. And a king like Hammurabi had the wit to see that he could turn it to his advantage. He brought together disparate collections of rules from elsewhere, put them all in one place and said to everyone, here it is, these are the rules by which we should live. If we all remember this, and we all understand our place in the bigger picture, then civilization will look after us. And essential to that was putting the law in a place where people could see it. Writing made that possible. Hammurabi exploited that understanding to create his stele, which then underlined his dominance, that he had brought this together. Just as Marduk had slain Tiamat and brought order out of chaos... So he, Hammurabi, was laying down the law and ensuring order in place of chaos. The first writing surely came from those needing to keep count, deals done and money agreed pharaohs and a civilization that lasted 3,000 years. The moment a giant stone seals a tomb. Details of a great man's duties. What was owned and what was paid. Unprecedented organisation on a scale never seen before. Bureaucrats who made the world's wonders possible. Next time in my love letter to the world To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book, it's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy and the post-production is by All Studios. The graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening.